Uh, surround yourself with really good advisors. I know that said really well, but let's talk more about how to pick advisors. I would say that as a founder, define your philosophy for how you're going to grow your company, how you're going to treat your people, the people you're going to support, and find advisors who are experienced in the area where you have gap. Go to accelerator programs, go to your local co-working space, go Google spaces if you don't have any in your community, and search out people that have had success in the areas you'd like to have success that you're not very good at. And then offer to comp them well for being in the company. And in that relationship, over a couple of conversations, you'll figure out if they're just trying to get equity or get compensation, mm-hmm. or if they're really in it for a mutually vested interest in the vision you're trying to drive. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And if you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. Now, today we've got another great guest on the podcast, uh, William McGuire. And uh, William uh, went initially went to school at uh, in North Carolina State and uh, went into, I think, aerospace and business, and then uh, did uh, charity fundraisers for a period of time, um, as well as, I think, grew hops for beer and also did some programming and IT work. Um, as well as uh, pro- or some event productions in the charity or in the charity events, um, then worked for a staffing company uh, for a period of time and did some IT work for them. Also went to work uh, for uh, did some media work in general for a while. Moved to another company and then moved to an investment and uh, crowdfunding company uh, founded in 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 now if I'm going to pronounce it right in Colo is that right? That's correct. All right. I was looking, wanted to make sure I did pronounce it. So found it in Colo and uh, working on the, found, or on the founding community for companies to help to grow and to make exits and um, and to make the companies investable and whatnot. And he'll dive into a lot more of what that all means. But with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, William. Wow, appreciate being here. Thank you, Devin. So I gave kind of the, the brief high-level introduction or, or run-through of your journey, but let's uh, go back a bit into, uh, to when your journey started and kind of tell us how uh, you got going in college and how it went from there. That's pretty good. I mean, you covered it, so I don't know if I need <laughs> I'll, I'll cover it a little bit. So when I was in college, you mentioned uh, street festivals. Yeah, I, I was doing aerospace engineering at the time, minor in entrepreneurship, and uh, I had a lot of friends that we were with Engineers Without Borders and we decided, hey, what would it look like if we shut down one of our major thoroughfares, uh, Hillsborough Street for All Day Street Festival, and raise money for charity? So we did that two years running, had 40,000 people the second year show up, uh, became a kickoff for street construction that people can still see today. And there are many other groups now that do street festivals there, so that's fun. Mm. And then when I was in college, too, we were trying to, in our entrepreneurship class, work on a project together. So we said, what about a beer production? Because at our time, there were only 34 microbreweries in the state now, or Mm -hmm. then, I I don't even know how many it is now. It's probably like over 400 or something. But we're like, North Carolina was looking for a cash crop. And we said, what about hops for beer production? We got lots of agriculture space. So we looked at that. And then I was application programming uh, with some buddies um, and just doing that while I was in college. So it it was a lot of fun. And then that flash forward, uh, I followed my wife, who is 
uh, in ministry. And I said, well, as long as she doesn't get a calling to Alaska, then I can do all three of those at once. I can do event <laughs> production. I can do, you know, grow hops and can still program. So luckily she got a call to Virginia. We moved up there. I worked for a, a group that was a founding B Corp member. So for people that don't know what a, a B Corp is, it's basically a company that wants to do more with their profit than just give it to the man. And so people probably recognize Ben and Jerry's, Patagonia, Newman's, all those types of companies, that, those are B Corps. So mm -hmm. I worked with a founding B Corp member that was part of that whole movement and management IT consulting. And then I uh, moved over to, I was, it was 2016 and found this whole world we call investment crowdfunding. And all that is, is that now anybody can be an investor in early stage companies or be an investor in their backyard. Um, and companies like Main Street or, you know, apartment complexes or anything that's going up. So it's, it's a pretty cool world. And we were trying to find a way to get back down to North Carolina. And I thought I was supposed to get a job. But I was sitting in the Innovate Raleigh Summit, downtown Raleigh, 2018. And I was listening to about 800 founders complain about a lack of access to capital. And this was, this was two years into after my wife and I had been investing in this world for a while. And what I couldn't understand was that there had been 120 million raised, I think at that time, been several hundred founders who had gone through the process. And I think a total of 10 founders out of North Carolina, my home state, had raised capital in this way. And I could not figure out why. So did a long story short and some other personal things going on in my life that I could share a longer story on that was going on with my dad, my mom, and a couple other things. I found out I was supposed to be an entrepreneur again. <laughs> so I moved out of being a consultant and I'll call it more corporate America or for corporate America to be an entrepreneur again and trying to get, find a way to get all the resources a founder needed to build an investable company, which I define as, hey, look, even if you weren't raising capital, people want to put money in your company and then helping the founder understand all the different ways that they can potentially get funding into their company, whether that's off of revenue or off these new models. So that's my journey. So now I'm going to go back because you jumped over a couple parts I thought were maybe or at least questions I had along your journey. So, sure. you, you know, so you graduated, you got into hops, you got into IT, you got into event planning and said, hey, why not do all three? As long as my wife doesn't go to Alaska, I should be fine. You did that yeah. for a period of time. Now, if I remember when we chatted a bit, you also went and worked for a staffing firm and did IT development for a period of time. Is yeah. that right? That's right. Yeah. Right before I jumped into the, the management IT consulting firm. Um, I'd worked for a company that got sold to a global company similar to it. Our CEO of our company was, was dying of cancer at the time. And so he was looking for a match for people to sell a company to and uh, found this company that he sold us to and ended up working for them across uh, one of the largest media companies in the U.S. that went through Berkshire Hathaway's acquisition of part of their assets, if that hints at anything. It's working for a merger and acquisition firm, mainly coordinating their website development. And then also working for the largest uh, renewable or hydro renewable energy company in the U.S. and Canada. And it was a lot of traditional management IT consulting work, worked with a lot of great people. And like the management IT consulting firm that I um, moved to after that, uh, just better aligned with my values for the way they were conducting business and the way they did things wasn't there was anything necessarily wrong about the previous company. It was just more aligned from a vision perspective. So it was a really, it was a nice segue. 
Mm. So now, so now you do that for a period of time and then I, and, you know, and it worked for some of the companies and you touched on it briefly, but you know, what got you into investment, crowdfunding, making companies fundable, helping them to grow and doing your own, going your own way. In other words, you'd worked for yeah. other people for a period of time. You know, you'd had success, you'd managing multiple things. What made you decide, okay, I'm not going to do consulting anymore. not going to work for others. I'm going to work for myself. Kind of what was that? Was there a trigger point? Was there something that just stood out to you? Was it more of a slow evolution or kind of how did that evolve? Well, it was it one of the one of the triggers for that was when I was in the Innovate Raleigh Summit in there and I went back home and I was concerned with my wife, you know, we're personally benefiting from this knowledge we have of this industry. I mean, we've had several exits off of the founders that we've invested into on these public models. Um, at the time we had it, because everybody was still questioning whether or not this world was gonna work or not. And it, it's working really well. But uh there was also this, this thing I had in the back of my mind that maybe I'm not supposed to be employed anymore. So one thing that's happened with my dad and mom at the time was that my mom and dad were traveling from Wilmington to Johns Hopkins University, Johns Hopkins Hospital, because my dad had pancreatic cancer. And he kept going past all their expectations of, oh, you're going to live three months. Oh, you got six months to live. He ended up living two and a half, three and a half years through that whole process. But it was the weekend that I had gone to Innovate Raleigh Summit. And I came back, it was the last weekend that my dad and mom needed a place to stop halfway. Our house was halfway in Richmond, Virginia on that drive. That was the last time they had to do that every three weeks. And it just all clicked at once. I said, hey, Liz, if we really wanna represent and be authentic to our values with our kids and say, we're really trying to create a better world, the management IT consulting firm I was working with they had an awesome model. Our equity was gifted as a for-profit entity. Our equity was gifted to two public foundations. So upon a dissolution event, that became seed capital for other companies. Hmm. So I said, well, that, that's impactful. That's super impactful because it impacts people picking and choosing where that capital goes. But I said, what if in the investment crowdfunding industry where literally anybody can put money into a company um, imagine somebody have had the opportunity to put a hundred bucks in Uber when they were first getting started. When they went IPO, I mean, a hundred bucks in Uber or a thousand bucks in Uber is worth 1.5 million on mm. X, even after dilution mm. and everything in between, you know, nobody on the stock market where people are trading on Robinhood or anything else had access to Uber until they were valued at 80 billion. So the majority of the wealth, the size of the private markets is about five times larger than the stock market, if not larger than that. The majority of the returns are made in the private market. So I said, what if instead of having a centralized entity pick and choose where they're going to you know, potentially drive impact in community, if we just democratize the, the ability for the community to invest in these companies, if we make them aware this is even a possibility, I bet people will put part of their returns back into the carry on areas that match with their proclivity. And I said, mm -hmm. my child, you know, our two children have different proclivities than my wife and I, they have different interests for where they want to get back. You probably do with your wife and children, everybody does. Sure. But if we just make them aware there's this, this, this market that's been there for 80 plus years, they haven't had access to, or we're not aware of and allow them to choose how they want to participate, allow them to choose how they want to make impact. And so that's a long story for kind of where it resonated in my philosophy, but 
that that was why I started the company. I wanted my children and other friend, their friends and other people on the way to have access to capital and have the ability as, you know, not only Americans, but as humans to basically choose where they want to drive impact and have more resources to do it with. So now you, you have that kind of idea and then you say, okay, I want to yeah. go do my own thing. I got a bit of the, you know, the mission, what I want to change and make improve and make better. So you go out and you start that now. Did it, you know, you started it and took off like a rocket ship and it was just all, you know, all upward trajectory. Was there bumps and, you know, ups and downs along the way? Was it figuring oh, yeah. out? Did you have to pivot any or all of the above? Oh yeah, absolutely. So when I first started out uh, back in 2019, uh, the industry was still pretty young. I'd say it's still pretty young now. And I thought, Hey, look, if I just go make people aware, I make founders aware that they can leverage these funding models and just provide them education around here, here's how you can go after it, then they'll just do it, right? Because <laughs> it's amazing. It's working in California and Texas and Boston. That's not how things work over here. People, mm -hmm. people have to see it happen in their backyard. They have to see their friends do it. And even then, like three or four people have to do it before they're even interested. So instead of chasing after founders and letting and trying to convince them how great this new model of funding was, and also seeing, there was also another combination. There was a lot of what I call offerings on platforms that I were just like, those companies don't seem like they'd ever return any money. They're just not structured properly. You know, I really wanted both. If more people are getting to the model, how great would it be if people had the opportunity to put money into companies, but those companies have a high probability of potential return or higher probability than they would be not, not the one in 10 model, but the eight in 10 model are successful. So in early 2020, we pivoted to only working through partners, those people that are vested in the long-term success of the founder community. And we also found a way that it's not just about people raising capital. It's more about the founder's ability to grow a really successful company while having access to raise capital or to fund their company in any way that is beneficial to them. So as a result of that pivot, I haven't done sales ops as I would traditionally call them. All of our founders that we work with come from referral partners. They all come from other founders that found success in the model. And we've had far more founders that have actually ended up growing off of revenue and through partner channels and sales channels than they have off of raises. And to me, that, that's an ultimate success story because if a founder can find the needs they need for their company in a way that resonates with both their philosophy and their strategy, that's when a company is successful, not just trying to drive them towards an investment raise. So that was a big pivot. I'd say that's kind of like a big pivot in our model, but it was a, hmm. it was a major pivot in philosophy, but it was a, it was a minor pivot in, in practice, if that makes sense. No, it definitely makes sense. So... So now, you know, that kind of brings us up to today. Now, looking a bit in the future, you know, what is the, what do you look and say, what does the next six, 12 months look like for you guys? That's a great question. I mean, really, we're doing two things. We're just helping surround founders with the resources, the community, the experts they need. So they can basically do what Henry T. Ford did, where he had a push button on his desk. And if he had a question something, he could just push a button and find an answer to it because there's plenty of other stuff to guess at than having to know everything. Mm -hmm. And then making sure that founders are aware that they have this ability to grow their companies, seek investment, get funded, however, is beneficial to their company. So in that, I mean, we took on, we 
performed two acquisitions of two companies, December 31st, right after closing our private round, rebranded from crowdfunding Cita and Colo all in a quarter. And we did that all for the benefit of the founder community. So now we've got expertise and verticals around marketplace founders, like the next Ubers, Airbnb, you know, gig economy founders of the world. We have a pretty industry agnostic approach to how we help founders grow, scale, and exit. One of our one of our last founders right now, they have a 90% profit margin on the software they sell. And we helped them put in a sales strategy model for that. And they've already deployed it and they're growing like crazy. It's only been a couple months. And one of our other founders just launched his first location for a commissary kitchen back in uh, December. It became profitable in February. So everybody's like, how do food premiers survive during COVID? And it's, you know, he's helping them do that as well and grow and scale their businesses. And he's opening up a second location. So it sounds like when I talk about what the founders are doing, it sounds like a lot, mm. but it's really centered around just four primary ways of growing a successful company. And we just hold in on those with the founder community and make sure that founders have plenty of founder to founder interactions and experts that they need to find those resources so they're not guessing, so they can really just focus on growing successful companies. So it's a lot of fun. Well, that does sound like a lot of fun. Sounds like a fun trajectory to be on. So, well, now that kind of brings it up to where you're at today, you know, a little bit where you're heading in the future. And we'll transition to the two questions I always ask at the end of each podcast. And just as a heads up to all the listeners, we also have the bonus question. Where we'll talk a little bit about intellectual property uh, as a follow-on to that. So if you'd like to hear a little bit about that, uh, just make sure to stay tuned. But otherwise, the first question I always ask in the podcast is, if along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? And what did you learn from it? Oh, great, great question um trying to build a business without a sales and marketing team was probably my worst decision ever <laughs> so my one of the things that's common in some companies but not all others but as an entrepreneur i tried to build a company and i thought that if i had a good technology stack that that would build the company mm. nobody buys tech they they you know people sell because you have something of value to provide them and you're able to generate awareness around that and grow it. So that, that company completely flopped. So that was probably the worst business decision I ever made with a partner. But from the learning of that, have been able to incorporate that knowledge to a lot of founders and save a lot of founders tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, because they take a technology for, you know, first approach to building something. I'm like, why don't we just go test this out real quick? And it might cost you, I don't know, 30 bucks. And they find out within less than a month whether or not they can sell their product or service and then they can spend money on tech. No, and I, you know, it's always funny, you know, it's kind of the old movie, you know, if you build it, they will come type of thing. Yep. You, you get so enamored with the technology, say, oh, if I make the world's best technology, of course people will buy it. You know, we never learned from Betamax or we never learned from the, you know, the eight track or cassette or anything else. And just cause you always have the superior, the better technology isn't the only aspect of it. And yet, you know, it's funny how often you kind of start to drink your own Kool-Aid and think how cool it is. And people would of course pay me for this. And yet you have to get it out there and you have to get the word out there and convince them and help people to know what it is and why they'd use it and how they'd use it and why it's better and why they should pay for it. And if you don't, you know, it's, it's certainly a hard, a much, you know, there, I'm sure there are occasional successes there, but it's a much harder road to, uh, road to hoe. So that definitely is a, a great lesson to learn. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think at the end of the day, even if we look at the bigger companies of the world that we buy from and, you know, everything's push a button by it, we're still effectively buying from the relationship we see with the people that are on platform, not, not necessarily the product or service that tech provides. So it's an interesting psychology that gets incorporated. Absolutely. So now we'll jump to the second question, which is if you're talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Uh, surround yourself with really good advisors. I know that said really well, but let's talk more about how to pick advisors. I would say that as a founder, define your philosophy for how you're going to grow your company, how you're going to treat your people, the people you're going to support, and find advisors who are experienced in the area where you have gap. Go to accelerator programs, go to your local co-working space, Go Google spaces if you don't have any in your community and search out people that have had success in the areas you'd like to have success that you're not very good at Mm -hmm. and then offer to comp them well for being in the company. And in that relationship, over a couple of conversations, you'll figure out if they're just trying to get equity or get compensation Mm -hmm. or if they're really in it for mutually vested interest in the vision you're trying to drive. And that's, you know, that's probably one of the biggest pieces of advice I would give. No, and I I like that. And I think there's a a ton of wisdom there, you know, and that can, and it may not always be equity, but surrounding yourself with knowledgeable people that are there, that want to see your success and are willing to help out. And that can be in the form of everything from a good board in a company to a good co-founder, to good employees, to mentors, to people that, you know, that you can bounce ideas off of good spouse. You know, there's a lot of forms, but I think, you know, getting those people that are one that are in your corner that want to see you succeed, that are willing to help out and provide that invaluable advice definitely can make a huge difference. So I, I like that as a feedback. Well, yeah, as a great extended oh, go list there. I was going to say, that's a great extended list there, Devin. Absolutely. So now as we wrap up, before we jump to the bonus question, um, for all those the normal listeners don't want to listen to IP, and sometimes I don't blame you. But now if you if you uh, if you for people who want to reach out, they want to be an they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an investor, they want to be an employee, they want to be on a board member, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out and find out more? Uh, just reach out to Will at Incolo.io. I-N-C-O-L-O <laughs> All right. It kind of has a nice ring to it. I-N-C-O or C-O-L-O dot I-O. You said it a lot, a lot nicer yeah. than I did, but no, that's great. We I definitely do it in Colo Co. Just so when we're at the beach, we can do a special event or something. <laughs> anyway. That's right. That's funny. All right. Well, perfect. Well, I definitely encourage people to reach out, find out more. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you want to be a guest on the podcast, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com. Apply to be on the show. Two more things as listeners. Make sure to, one, uh, click subscribe in your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so everybody else can find out about all of our awesome episodes. Last but not least, if you ever have any questions about patents or trademarks or anything else with your business, feel free to grab some time with us to chat. Just go to strategymeeting.com. Now, now we get to go into the transition into the bonus question, which is always kind of fun because one, I get to talk a little bit about intellectual property, which I always have a fun time doing. Um, but also in, in two is it's, it flips the tables a bit. And now rather than me asking the questions, I get to answer the question. So with that, I'll turn it over to you to, to ask your uh, top intellectual property question. Sounds great. Well, I, I source wisdom from my team on this one to see what question they had top of mind. And I imagine a lot of founders do too with the 
rise of NFTs, these non-fungible non tokens, mm -hmm. what do you think is the, do you think they'll actually stand up in terms of people's ownership over this? Like what, what are the biggest IP considerations around NFT in your opinion? Yeah, and give or people just for or people that don't know as much about what an NFT is, it's a non or non non fungible, if I can say it, or without getting or, or non fungible token, or sometimes you know assets if you wanted to broaden it out, but non fungible tokens, and that can be everything from it gets tied towards oftentimes cryptocurrency and kind of how that works, but even you can broaden it out, and sometimes that you know is digital art. You know, one of the things that people oftentimes will do is digital art or digital collections. You know, trading cards are now or maybe are digital or video game virtual items or another one you know it has a broad thing and it's a very evolving and unknown field in the sense that it's just if you look at the legal field in generally it always lags behind technology you know and there's a little bit of irony especially as your patent attorney it lags behind but the law is always slow to catch up with society so usually you'll have things that come about things that you know had or weren't initially con considered in the law and then the law has to figure out now how do we deal with these things and i would put nfts in there in the sense that you know in one sense it's it's certainly an asset you know if you go buy an original work of art, whether it's a painting and it's on the wall or whether you buy an original work of art that's digital, or if you go buy unique tokens in a video game, you can own that or, you know, you should, you, you, somebody still had to create that. There is still a intellectual property or to that. But on the other hand, it makes it more difficult to, if they're easily copied, if they're easily, or, or, or you know, or reproduced, then how do you, you know, artwork is, and we'll stick on artwork just as an easy one, you know, artwork, there's only one of a kind, you know, I paint each painting by brush and everything else, but now you're doing that. How do you have that exclusive nature? So it's interesting when you get into that, whether it's cryptocurrency or other things, how you deal with that with the intellectual property. And the short answer is, I don't know. I don't, it's a, it's a one where there, there's, starting to get or case law around it about how you own it about how you can or keep it or it can keep it unique and different to everybody else and how you value that how the law do it but the short answer is there isn't a good how that's going to be treated as intellectual property now i think that you know it should be treated similar to every other type of asset where if you create it if you own it if you pay for it then it ha all the same or laws hold to it but i don't know it's a, it's a fun question and it's one where I think that it should evolve into or similar to all other assets, but it's one where it's, it's the law is lagging behind and I don't, there isn't a definitive answer. So that wasn't a probably a fulfilling answer, but it's the best one I can give. So we need more precedent set is what I'm hearing. That, that's good. Well, can I throw a second one at you? Absolutely. Uh, so I, I get this one from founders a lot too. Um, I guess this can go both ways. When, when a founder has a trademark, their assets, like their name. Oh, I'm going to give, I forgot, but I'm going to interrupt your question just because I did okay. have one ex interesting example of what I thought was an NFT that was by Nike. And I don't know if you're aware of it. So they just, and as an example, and also for the listeners, they had a, what they called a cryptographic, which was a digital asset for footwear. So they would actually start to incorporate in their shoes that it was a digital asset. So you'd have, you know, almost different icons you can do. And then you pay for exclusivity to have certain digital things, you know, certain things displayed on your shoe that would have a little screen that would look cool. And they actually did go get a patent on that. And so it was interesting. And I was going to mention that and then it slipped my mind was that, you know, that one's an interesting one where, they, the way that they authenticated, the way they integrated it into shoe, that was part of it. And then it was also the NFT that was on the 
it was a digital asset that was in a shoe that they only sold so many. It was kind of that collector's items, you know, almost the Michael Jordans, but now it was a digital or an NFT. So there is some precedent, and I didn't want to say there isn't any, but there's certainly less, much less precedent than what's out there. So now I'll, I didn't mean to interrupt your question. Go ahead with your second one. Well, now that now that gives me an interesting follow-up because we actually have a couple people that were doing like shoe arbitrage. So I'd be interested to see what those shoes are trading for, but anyway. <laughs> I haven't followed up to see how much it's worth or where they've got or how much they've implemented it. But I know at least on the patent side, they went down that route of actually having that or that integrated in to make it a a digital collectible or collectible version of a shoe. So now you were going to talk or ask one other question you had about uh, trademarks. Yeah. I was curious when a, when a founder hasn't trademarked their brand, their asset, their uh, you know, just their name or their logo or anything. What, um, what happens if they don't do that, but it's been in use for a while? How, how does ownership get treated if somebody else comes in and tries to copy that for a similar industry? Yeah, and, and there's, there's, I'll give you this standard lawyer answer of it depends, which is always how lawyers answer a question. But there's, there's some general, I mean, and it does depend, you know, this is general advice. And so it, it does vary a bit situation to situation. But in general, let's say I'd gone out and I made Devin's restaurant. Now, I'll, you know, I had a much catchier name, which I can't think of off the top of my head. One of the previous uh, podcasts of their, that I was on, um, they, they talked about Scooby Dooby Dooby Doo was their restaurant. So maybe I'll use that as a name. But let's say you went out and you started that as your restaurant and you got it going, you know, you, you were doing it and it, you and you didn't necessarily get a trademark on it, but you were you've been around for 10 years. And then somebody and then somebody else came along and let's say you were in Chicago. I was choosing a random place and you were doing that in Chicago. And then somebody else in California, San Francisco decided to do the same thing. And you're saying, hey, well, they're copying my brand. You know, what rights do I have? And let's say to add on to that, that per, or that place in California now went and did file a federal trademark on it. So they did get that protection. They went through, went all the way through the process. Well, then what happens is, is because you were the first person to use it, you have some common law or state law rights that go along with it, generally common law rights that allow you to continue to use it in the geographic location that you've been operating in, but it stops you from expanding outside of that area. In other words, if you're in Chicago doing it in Chicago first, and you were, you know, before the, the other place in San Francisco started doing it, you can continue in Chicago, but you can expand out. So now let's say you want to sell off your business, you want to franchise, you want to license, you want to do something else, or let's say you pass on, your kids take over, they have bigger aspirations, or someone wants to merge or acquire you, anything else, it severely limits where your trademark coverage is to the current geographic location you're in. So you can continue to use it, but you can't expand out. Same thing with a person in San Francisco. They basically now have the rights to everywhere in the U.S. except for or Chicago, where you have those original common law rights. So it kind of gives you limited protection but it can create a lot of headaches so once you have a brand go grab it <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a short takeaway from it if you have a brand that you're ever wanting to do anything with especially beyond just a local area or you know mom and pop shop serve the local community which are all great com- businesses but if you're ever wanting to do that or you think anybody else will ever want to do that with your business make sure to grab the, the grab the trademark for it makes sense all right. Well, with that, we'll wrap it up for there. And was, those were fun, uh, uh, fun questions to chat, chat about a little intellectual property. Thank you again, William, for coming on the, the podcast. It's been a fun and a pleasure. And wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. I appreciate it, Devin. Thank you for hosting me. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Absolutely.